And for the rest of us, we are in Daniel chapter 7. Today is the day you've all been waiting for. Today, it's the apocalypse. Or if I could maybe rip off an old song, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I am... Well, that's the question, isn't it, right? That's the question. Now, often we think of the apocalypse. We think of the end of the world, as it were. Eschatology, to use sort of a theological category. We think of that, and we think it's supposed to make us wise for the future. But I want to make an argument today that our text in chapter 7, and we're going to see this to the end of the book of Daniel, that, that kind of apocalyptic genre is not supposed to make us wise for the future, in one sense. It's not supposed to help us to make sense of why North Korea is blowing up missiles in the sea. Really, what apocalyptic literature that we're going to see here today, what it's meant to do is Unveil what's going on in the hidden, the unseen realm in order for us to live faithfully today, right now. It is supposed to help us to to see how truly dangerous this world is with frightening images, symbolic images, to unveil the future at times in order for us to think through How do we live faithfully today, right now, at this point in history? Now, apocalyptic literature, it's not like a story in one sense. So so if you're those people that uh, are, people are talking about a book and you're like, I'll wait for the movie. All right, apocalyptic literature is for you. Like it's, it's highly visual, highly symbolic. And so you've got crazy images, crazy beasts, all pointing to these greater realities. Apocalyptic literature also, it messes with time. And so we're going to see that, that before this, it was just kind of working chronologically, you know, linearly through time, and then now we're going to mess with time. We're going to have flashbacks. We're going to go forward and back in time. So, so it might be helpful to you think apocalyptic literature is like a Christopher Nolan movie. But just put yourself in Daniel's shoes for a moment. We're going to see how this kind of works itself out in this literature. But but just put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Daniel's in Babylon. And Daniel was told by God that I'm going to send you into exile because of your idolatry, because of your sin. I'm going to send God's people into exile. But there's going to be an expiration date. I'm going to bring you home. Until then, I want you to thrive in Babylon. I want you to prosper. I want you to seek the prosperity of the the city where I've put you. I want you to set down roots and have family. And so Daniel, every year, he's just waiting and waiting and wondering, is this the day? Is this the year? Is this the season when I get to go home? Do, do, Do you feel that tension? Daniel wants to go home. Daniel's even thinking probably about that great Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 8, when God would raise up a king like David and that he would constitute his kingdom that would have no 
end. And Daniel's wondering, is God going to build his kingdom, consummate his kingdom, that great Davidic promise, when he brings people back after the 70 years of captivity? And so when we open up chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, that's the sort of essential plot tension of the text. Would the end of the exile mean the beginning of God's consummated earthly reign? And so we get this this answer in a, a, a sort of climactic, apocalyptic grandeur God unveils all these unseen things to tell Daniel some sobering news. Basically, it's going to be a minute. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So the big idea, which I try to summarize, and we're actually going to piece, we're going to kind of chunk this down in three parts, right? Because all sermons need to be three points. It should be on the screen behind me, and it's simply this. It's a little bit longer, but... It's hard. So this is the best that I could come up with this week. So though evil seeks to devour God's people, that's going to be the first vision. We're going to see that there's three visions here and an interpretation. Though evil seeks to devour God's people, point two, God wins. Point three, and his people will secure a great kingdom ruled by a great king. Now go to chapter seven, verse one. Verse 1 is just going to orient us to the setting when this takes place, what's kind of going on. We'll just read the first verse to orient us to the rest of the chapter. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So right here you see, right, where we're going back in time. So in chapter 5, we had the king... We had that writing on the wall. We had King Belshazzar. And we had his final year as king right before Babylon fell. And now, starting in chapter 7, we have the first year of that same king. So it's a flashback. It's going back in time. And we see what happened in that first year. Daniel has a dream. Which is different because before this, right, kings had dreams. And Daniel interpreted the dreams. Now Daniel has a dream, and we're going to soon learn that Daniel cannot make sense of it. Daniel cannot figure out what it means, and so Daniel looks for an interpreter of that dream, and he finds it down in verse 16. He needs an angel to interpret it. And so the sort of structure and flow of the text is, we're going to see three visions, and then we see an interpretation. So first, the first vision, starting in verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings and a bird on its back. 
and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from the rest of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Clear? Moving on? So that's the first vision. The first vision is of four strange beasts. I mean, these are terrifying, unnatural beasts. I mean, it reads like Tolkien, Narnia, Percy Jackson, right? Harry Potter, pick your fantasy literature. This is what this reads like. It is crazy, fantastical. Well, God himself, we learn uh, in verse 3, he stirs up the sea. So God's in control of all of this. And he stirs up the sea from the north, the south, the east, and the west, the four corners of the globe. He stirs them up. And notice that beasts rise from the sea like orcs from the bottom of a pit. The sea represents, remember, this is apocalyptic, so all these sort of things are symbolic, but the sea represents chaos. It's where disorder is. It's the place where evil rules, where where people in opposition to God reign, as it were. And so that's the first hint that we, we get that the beasts that are rising out of the sea, they're no bueno, right? These are the bad guys. No good. And each of these beasts, they're slightly different, aren't they? They're described in different characteristics, but they're each different, but all of them have animalistic characteristics, don't they? So, so, so notice that, that these creatures, they're not just, there's a lion, there's a leopard, there's a bear. No, no, no. They're, they're like hybrid animals. They're unnatural. Back in Genesis, if you don't remember, when God's creating creatures, he says he he created them according to their kind. So this is like decreation. This is unnatural creation. This is creation at its worst. It's creation as it was not meant to be. Disordered and unnatural. And so look at these. You get the Verse 4, you get the, the first beast that comes out of the sea, which is a lion with eagle's wings. Then the second beast is described as a bear with one side higher than the other. That's verse 5. The third beast is described as a leopard with four wings and four heads. Verse 6. And then lastly, the fourth beast arises. It's described, I almost sense like Daniel's like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so scary. It's so terrifying. He's just like trying to grasp at whatever this whole thing means. And he's describing that they have horns. It's got teeth. It's like a monster. And on its head is this crown, horn, which symbolically represents power. And then out of like these three comes this little horn. And this little horn has eyes. And it speaks. Now, you, you might remember in chapter 2, if, we, if you go flip back over to chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue with four different metals involved. 
And that vision is eerily similar to this, isn't it? Right? You got four beasts corresponding to, to four metals. And if you're wondering, well, is it the same? Because we said in, in chapter 2 that those different metals all represent corresponding kings and kingdoms that are going to come, rise and fall all the way up to Rome. Well, if you're wondering, well, is chapter 7 talking about the same thing? Do these beasts represent kings and kingdoms? Well, uh, go, to, go down to verse 17. Verse 17 gives us the interpretation, right? That this, this angel comes to Daniel where he's really, really confused and he says, Verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So so just like Daniel 2, these beasts represent kings and kingdoms that are all going to rise and fall. And so basically I take the kind of historic traditional interpretation which is that the kingdoms listed in Daniel 2 are the same kingdoms described and listed in Daniel 7. So you've got Babylon, which seems to correspond with that first beast. Even how uh, King Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for a while. The same thing happens in chapter 4. We we see it almost described perfectly in kind of symbolic language there in verse 3, verse 4. And so we got Babylon, then we got the Medo-Persians, then we got Greece, and then we have Rome. These are all kingdoms that, that, that arise to power, and then they fall to power, and the next one comes. It's like a pattern. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see what, what, what chapter 7 is talking about is this divine pattern that comes on God's people over and over and over again, which is kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Now, what, what do these kingdoms do? Well, they rule, that's symbolic of these horns. It even says they have dominion. But they're also beastly, aren't they? And so they have sort of a natural beastly instinct. And we learn this in the interpretation at the end of chapter 7. So so Daniel is wondering, like, what does this all mean? Because they're described as as stomping, crushing, ripping, breaking. There's, There's like... You know, it's, it's like a lion devouring its prey. That's how these beasts are describing. And so he's, he's, he's wondering, what, is, what does this all mean? Like, who are they attacking? Who are these beasts coming after? Daniel asks that question to the angel, verse 19. Let me read this. Then I decided to know the truth about this fourth beast, right? This is, the fourth beast was even more terrifying. This beast was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, of which it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the horn that came out of it, before which the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and at that seemed great, greater than its companions. Now, look at what this kingdom does. Look at what these kingdoms do. Verse 21. As I looked, this horn... This, this, this last kingdom made war with the saints and prevailed over them. See what all these kingdoms are doing? All these beasts that are rising out, they instinctively are biting. And they're biting the saints of the Most High. Which is a, just a, a, a stand-in, a, kind of a, a synonym for a description of God's people. That's what these beasts do. They attack 
They come after. They seek to devour. They seek to threaten God's people. And if you keep reading in verse 23 through 25, which I'm not going to, but it just reiterates again, the angel is just reiterating that that's what these beasts are doing. They are coming against God and his people. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but these kingdoms that rise and fall, all kingdoms that rise and fall, I should say, are in one way or another in opposition to God and his people. That's what these beasts represent. They represent earthly kingdoms. And they have a name, they have a purpose, they have a sort of an animalistic instinct, right? I don't care how gentle a dog is, if you corner the dog and you are aggressive enough, that dog will bite. And that's what Daniel's saying about all human kingdoms. Now, in the book of Revelation, John uses eerily similar images to describe the same reality. So you get to Revelation 12, and he speaks about this dragon representing Satan who is coming. He's attacking the people of God. The people of God go into the wilderness. God provides for them in the wilderness. And then you open up chapter 13, and you have this, this beast that comes rises out of the sea, and look how this beast in verse 1 of chapter 13 is described. Just listen and just think about Daniel chapter 7 in this first vision. See if you can see the similarities. Like, John is stealing from Daniel 7. And I saw a beast rising from the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion. And, it, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So this beast that arises, the, the, the dragon, Satan, gives power and authority to this beast. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So, so, so in John's gospel, he takes the various beasts in Daniel 7, and he combines all of them, doesn't he, Right? Lion and leopard and bear. He combines all of them to talk about this one great beast that will, be, that will be given authority by the dragon to do what? To seduce the nations. To, to seduce the church. The whole earth, it marvels and begins to follow this beast. Now, I, I, we, we can debate various things, but I just want you to, to realize in one sense, how clear this is. What, what Daniel's saying needn't be really confusing. Basically what he's saying, from Babylon to the last kingdom before Christ's second coming, though some kingdoms are better than others, though there are some kingdoms that have more freedom than others, all human kingdoms, all human governments, whether republics or monarchies, whether totalitarian or democracy, all human kingdoms from Babylon to the Medo-Persians to Greece to Rome and on, all of them are beastly. And the ultimate beast being Satan uses at his disposal, he is an opportunist, and he uses at his disposal the, 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 the things that, are, that, that grant authority and he uses even human governments in order to accomplish his means of coming after God's people and God. That's that's not even 
only where we find it. I mean, if you, if you go to Psalm 2, if this is sort of shocking when you think about human kings, just look at what Psalm 2 says. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst the bonds apart and their cords from us. In other words, all the nations are raging against God and his anointed, Jesus Christ, and they're seeking to unravel the plans of God. This is why Daniel is so alarmed. I mean, at the, at, in verse 15, we read, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions alarmed me. And then if you go to verse 28, the last, it says, Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. Daniel's, for, you know, for lack of a better term, he's freaking out. But you've got to step back and go, why? Why is Daniel so perplexed, so anxious, so fearful? Because he realizes God's people are going to suffer. That's what this first vision is. These beasts, these kingdoms are coming, and they're coming after God and his people. And he sees it all. Not in detail, but at large, and he realizes it's going to be a minute until God ushers in his kingdom where there's no tears, where there's joys, where it's just this perfect, harmonious, new-like Eden. It's going to be a minute. Which is our reality, too. I mean, I, I haven't lived a long time. But I've lived long enough to see uh, pastors fall because they couldn't get a grip of their anger. I've seen seminary professors get fired because they couldn't get a grip on their lust. I've seen friends deconstruct their faith and say, mm, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I've seen people leave the church over trivial matters and tell me, I'll never come back to the local church, ever. I've seen pastors jailed. I've seen churches sued. I've seen people lose their entire inheritance because they desired to follow Jesus. I've seen people try to use words of love, try to encourage people to follow Jesus and not their sin, only for a culture to turn those words and say, that's hate speech. I mean, I haven't lived long. I'm not blind. Human governments are a good gift. We, we talk about that all the time. And we ought to pray for them and encourage them. But at the same time, at the same moment, that doesn't suggest that, at, that all human governments, all human kingdoms, are beastly. Inevitably, they bite. And we know this. But Paul writes about this and says, our fight is not against flesh and blood but about the principalities, the spiritual forces. That's our fight. Our fight is not a culture war. Our fight is a fight, but it's against these, these demonic, beastly forces behind the scenes seeking to come against God and his people. I mean, by way of application, I just want to encourage us all. Be on guard. All governments demand allegiance. But for Christian, our ultimate allegiance is to no empire and no king. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus 
King Jesus himself. That's the first. The first is we are sort of brought low in this sober reality that there are beasts seeking to devour God's people. But then, second version. Okay? And just like a Christopher Nolan, we're going to mess with time. So, so we just saw that like the, from, from kind of Babylon to the, end, kind of to, to the second coming of Christ, and now we're going to go straight to the second coming of Christ. Verse 9. We were looking down, now we're about to look up. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands served him. Tens of thousands times, tens of thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. As I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So instantly the scene changes, doesn't it? We were looking at the sea as these beasts were coming out, and now instantly we're in a throne room. We're we're in this heavenly courtroom, and we see the Ancient of Days, which is God himself, he who has no beginning and no end, and he comes in and he sits behind judgment seat. And look at how he's described, verse 9, right? He's described as having clothing as white, hair as pure wool, right? This is getting at the idea he is, he is perfect and holy. It's sort of a contrast between the beasts, right? That they're just like so unholy. They're just like a combination of all these things, but he is just has purity at his heart and at his being. And look at how he's also described. He sits on this throne, and it's described as having flames all around it, right? Wheels of flames, and a river of flame that's flowing out of it. Now, this too is, is symbolic, meaning flames are the idea of judgment, right? That God is so holy that you can't be in his presence without being consumed. And then you have this idea of this throne of judgment has wheels. What does that symbolically represent? Well, it's simply this. That those who stand in opposition to the ancient of days, the enemies of God, they can try to run, but they can't hide. Even God's thrones have wheels, right? God's throne is a Porsche. Good luck running from him, right? He can go anywhere, anytime, anyplace. God's throne is movable, so God's enemies have nowhere to hide. So the court is in session. He opens up the book. The gavel's right there. And then you see these hordes of angels coming in. That's this multitude. And we know it's their angels because later on, Daniel needs an interpreter and he grabs one of them and we learn that he's an angel. So these are angels and they come and they roll deep, right? So 10,000, it says 10,000. 10,000 was the greatest number at this time. It was like infinity, that was the greatest number you could count. And so saying 10,000 times 10,000 was basically saying that their number is uncountable. That's how deep the angelic host is that surround this throne. And they come in just wondering, what is God going to do? He's sitting in judgment. He's got his gavel. He's on his throne. 
What's he going to do? Well, it doesn't take long to find out. Verse 11. I think Daniel like blinks for a second and then all of a sudden there's this last kingdom that the horn is standing there and he's speaking blasphemous things. Anti-Christ things. Ridiculous things. And it's as if he's talking and he doesn't realize what's behind him. That God is behind him with all this, these angels sitting in judgment and he's looking forward. Everything's okay. I can buy my way out of this. This is fantastic. I have dominion. I have power. I have authority. I have money. This is great. I am God. You see this last kingdom speaking. And then he just turns around. This is my image of it. He turns around and instantly catches the eye of God. And what do we learn? Destroyed. Destroyed. Then verse 12 says, The rest of the beasts, though they had dominion and power for a season, they too are judged and destroyed. From the first Babylon to the last Babylon, all kingdoms and kings who set themselves in opposition to God and his people will be judged accordingly. See the point? We can debate some of the minutiae, but the point's clear, right? Daniel wants us to know something clear. That when all those enemies of God stand before God, their judgment will be a long time coming. And God, when he consummates the kingdom fully and finally, at Christ's second coming, no one will stand in opposition to God and his people. This first, the first vision is sobering, that, that it's going to be a minute and it's going to be hard. And it's going to be hard to get back to Eden. We're, we're going to have to be faithful. We're going to have to persevere. That's the first vision. The second version is, oh, but in the end, God wins. No injustice will prevail. Righteousness in the end will reign. God himself will destroy anyone in opposition to him. Every beastly empire will fall. And then we learn that salvation from that judgment will flow. And that's the third vision. Look look at it with me. Verse 13. I saw the third vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed. I mean... So he blinks again, or maybe this vision comes a little bit later. But this third vision, after seeing these beasts get devoured, first they rise to power, then they're devoured, then he sees something amazing. Now, if you remember from Daniel 2, the vision, we saw this stone come, which was Jesus Christ, and we saw this stone come and cut down all of these kingdoms. Well, now it's not a stone, is it? Now it's like a man. We sometimes think, oh, son of man, and we, we think that's like, uh, oh, that's, that's, that's the title for something or, or various things. But, but basically, this is just saying, whatever this vision is, the person who's riding on clouds, he looked like a man. It was like a man. Something like a man. And he comes in on a cloud. 
Which, whenever you see that, whenever you see clouds, you should be thinking theophany, right? When clouds come, often it's representative of God coming. So just think about clouds descending on Mount Sinai, and God then talks to Moses. Or think about God guiding his people in the wilderness. A cloud by day and a fire, pillar of fire by night. Well, this man, he comes into the throne room of God, and he's given a gift by the Ancient of Days, isn't he? I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing gift. He's given dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom. He's given a nation that serves him. And his, this dominion is everlasting. It can't go away. It's not limited in contrast to all those other kingdoms. And his kingdom, it can't be destroyed. Now, this is not the first man who has received a similar gift. But you've got to go backwards in time. Remember Adam, the first man? The first son of man, as it were? He was given a kingdom too. A kingdom from the Ancient of Days. God gave Adam a gift and said, I'm going to give you a kingdom, and I want you to have dominion over it, and I want you to rule over it. Do you remember this? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Right? He, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam's first job was as a king. He had a kingdom and he was supposed to rule it and have dominion over it. And then we flip over to chapter 3 and you have a beast, a serpent, who comes into the kingdom and says, oh, you think you've got a kingdom? I'll make your kingdom even better. You just have to disobey God. And at that point, the kingdom is taken from Adam and Eve. And then you fast forward and, 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 and the people of God assemble on Mount Sinai and, and God says, I'm going to give you a kingdom. And then they have this covenant that, they, that God and man, God and God's people come in contact with and they have this covenant and yet, well, the covenant's broken, isn't it? It's why Daniel's in Babylon. The covenant's broken. The covenant curses fell on God's people and now they are in exile. And then you've got another man. I mean, in the background, in Daniel, he's wondering, but there's supposed to be another man who's supposed to come, who's supposed to take possession as king of a kingdom that has no end. And we have that in Jesus Christ, don't we? Do you remember what one of the earliest things that Jesus does? He goes into a new, as it were, garden. And he's tempted by a beast. Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and says, Worship me and I'll give you a kingdom. The same test that Adam had. Only this son of man, this second Adam, whereas Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And his favorite title, like, Jesus is, you should think about it, Jesus' favorite nickname, it's the Son of Man. I mean, uh, almost 50 times Jesus refers to himself, mostly in Mark, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which, which is not talking about his humanity in distinction from his divinity. Now, that's true, but that's not what this is talking about. So Aaron read uh, Jesus before, uh, before Pontius Pilate, and he's talking about, or, or maybe it's another king, but he's, he, he's talking about himself um, uh, is the religious leaders. He, he goes before the religious leaders and he says, oh, you think, it's, you think I've spoken blasphemy? He says, I'm coming on clouds. I am the son of man. He's basically saying, Jesus right there is saying, I am the son of man 
in Daniel 7. And at that point, they're ripping their clothes. They're like, that's blasphemy. Because they understood something. They understood what this all meant. Jesus is right there saying, I am the son of man who is going to usher in my kingdom that has no end. I am the son of man in Daniel 7. Now, at that point, they thought Jesus was going to come and set up this earthly kingdom, but that's not exactly what Jesus did, did he? Jesus dies on a cross, a Roman cross, rises again on the third day, and then ascends on clouds. And he says, my kingdom has begun right now in my ascension, in my life, death, and resurrection. It's begun. Because in my life, death, and resurrection, I have purchased for myself a people. I have paid for their sins. I have died for them. They are my people. And in the same way that I went away on clouds, I'm going to come again. And when I come again on the clouds, that's when I will consummate the kingdom in its full, final, everlasting, eternal. Now, this is what the angel says. This is what Daniel 7 says. He says, this son of man is going to come, coming on a cloud, and he's going to build his kingdom. And look down what he says in verse 17. This really is the summary of this entire chapter. We, we, we want to debate, no, uh, where, where, you know, where's Russia or North Korea or what, whatever in this text. Verse 17 tells us exactly what the sort of thematic um, and kind of thesis of this chapter is. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High that's you, that's me, that's all, pe- all God's people in all places at all times, and all those people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's who that's talking about, the saints in the Most High, they shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because you would have thought that it would have said something different. It would have said, but, the, but who will receive this kingdom? Well, it's the Son of Man who's going to receive this kingdom. But multiple times it says, yes, but the saints of the Most High are also getting the kingdom. Verse 25. He, that's the beast, this ultimate kind of uh, empire and king that's going to be against Christ, he shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the laws, right? They're going to try to seduce the church and theologically wear, wear out the church emotionally and physically, and they shall be given into the hand for a time, a time, and a half a time, which we can debate what that is, but what we need to know for right now is that these beasts, they are going to have dominion and power for a limited time. However you want to say it, we know one thing is true. We can all agree on this, that a time, time, and a half a time is not eternal. God's kingdom is what's eternal. Then verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment, that's God, and his dominion shall be taken away, that's the beast, and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the Son of... to the people of the saints of the Most High. Do you know how amazing this is? This is utterly staggering. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, all, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
right? It is, theologically speaking, the end of the world right now. The end has come in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there will be an end of the end of the world. There will be a final end. But this is saying right here that if you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you receive right now the kingdom. Or as Ephesians is going to say, you will reign. You are currently reigning with Christ. Your communion, your union with Christ is so tethered. You're so close. You're so redeemed by Christ. You are so, to use the Pauline phrase, in Christ that currently right now, as Christ sits at the right hand of glory, it's as if you too, saint, are sitting at the right hand of glory with Christ, reigning. One day, you will actually judge angels. Don't even know what that means. Don't even ask me. It just says it. I'm going to take it and believe it. The beasts, these kingdoms, they're going to come and go. But if you've aligned yourself with King Jesus, you receive his kingdom that's his. And you get to be in it forever, now and forever. Now, it's the end of the world as we know it. And you all finished it, right? In the REM song, it says, and I am fine. That's the million dollar question, isn't it? If it's the end of the world, if we know the final judgment that's going to come on all those enemies of God, how are you? Can you say, in light of all of that, that you are fine? There are hard days ahead. Christ hasn't returned. Beasts, metaphorically, still lurk. They're still arising from the sea of chaos, seeking to devour God's people. But I don't think it's meant to discourage us. I think it's meant to sober us into the reality that we are called to faithful perseverance. Daniel's message is clear. Rulers, past, present, future, and the kingdoms they represent will seek at some point, inevitably, to seek to devour God's people. But the Ancient of Days is sitting in judgment right now over them. So let me just finish with how our text finishes, which is this great reminder and promise that the Ancient of Days has taken court. The greatness of kingdoms in the end will be destroyed and we will worship now and forever king of the most high and receive a kingdom with no end let's pray god we um we we remember that um that there are so many promises that are fickle so many promises that we even make that sometimes we fall short of and yet lord we were reminded that your promise of return, your, your promise of, of redeeming a people for yourself, your, your promise of restoring all things, your promise of new creation, your, your promise of an everlasting kingdom that you began but that you will consummate one day, we remember that that promise is secure. Lord, help us to, to live in the present 
reminded of the great future that we have. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to not be naive, to be thoughtful, and yet at the same time not to be frightened, knowing that the Son of Man has conquered the beast, the beast of sin, the beast of evil, even the beast of death. We thank you for that, and we pray all of this in your Son's name. Amen.